0: We've been in this book months. Tonight we say goodnight to Jude, uh, at least for our Thursday night Bible studies. We're in the last few verses. Verses 22 through 25. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that of all people, On the face of the earth, we are the most blessed. And I say that not because we're Americans, though we thank you for that, but because we're Christians. And even, that's far superior from being an American. Because our citizenship is in heaven. And we look for our king to come, and we don't place trust in man or in the kingdoms of this world. Lord, help us to be responsibly involved in this world, but at the same time knowing that we wait for that wonderful call when in the midst of the tribulation, in the midst of corruption, when Jesus comes back and sets his foot upon the earth and reclaims it back to the Father once and for all, we will rejoice as the angel proclaims the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. How we look for that. Lord, I pray that we would be also now responsible to be involved in what you called is the, the pillar and the ground of all truth, and that is the church of Jesus Christ upon the earth. To be responsible toward one another, to encourage and yet defend. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been with us the last several months, every time you've come Thursday night, you have buckled your spiritual seatbelt a little bit, because Jude is a very harsh book, is it not? You start reading it, and you think, oh, this is great. Introductory words, great. Piece of cake. Verse three, encouraging. Then there's a shift. And Jude, very harshly, points his finger at false doctrine and false prophets because every good shepherd cares about his flock. Doesn't want to see him get ripped off. In the last few verses, what Jude does is shift from pointing his finger at false teachers to pointing his finger at us. And what is now our duty to those who have been victimized By false teaching. Who are in danger of falling away and not walking closely with the Lord. And then he ends the book by pointing upward to God who is determined that we would live in victory. So he points the finger at the false prophets in most of the book. And then in verses 22 and 23 he points the finger at us and says, Now, here's your duty toward those who have been victimized by them. And finally says, Okay, let's end this thing with God. In verse 22 we read, And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever, Amen. Now, in verses 22 and 23, as I said, Jude shifts from that warning call, from sounding the clarion call to defend the faith and pointing his finger in judgment at false teachers, false prophets, to telling those of us who are in the church what we ought to do with people who've been influenced by it. And really, in these two verses, we can see our responsibility toward an unbeliever. And Jude will divide them up into three groups. But just as we're closing this book, I'd like to sort of close it sort of the same way we began it, by just keeping keeping you in touch with why this book was written. There were two groups. Remember who they were who came in the church and influenced them? The first group was called antinomians, anti-against, namas, the law. They were against the law, What that means is, they said something like this. Well, we are saved by grace. We are not under the law, which is right. But what that meant to them, grace to them meant the freedom to sin. They could do anything they wanted to do. They could live any way they pleased to live. They would do it in the name of God, and they were anti-namas. They were against any kind of moral restraint, any kind of boundary. And any time, any true christian like jude and like john would point his finger and say that is not right man you can't do that you can't live like that and call yourself a christian he who says i know god but walks in darkness is a liar and the truth is not in him they would say things like this well judge not lest ye be judged you have no right to judge me brother i'm above the law i'm not under the law i'm under grace. They thought that the only thing they were responsible to was some sort of inner voice, some spontaneous movement and calling and word of the Holy Spirit. Ever met a person like that? They feel they're not accountable to anybody. They are insulted by the fact that they would submit themselves to spiritual authority, be involved in a church, uh, be called on the carpet in loving discipline for anything. Hey, I'm above that. I don't account to anybody. It's just me and God. That's antinomianism. And it's dangerous, and because of that, many of the people in the early church were being influenced because of it. Um, I know lots of people, at least many that I meet, that, that seem to think that God wants to just say yes to anything. God is this big guy in the sky who just smiles at everyone and goes, Yes. God, is it okay if I live in total sin and abject wickedness as long as I go to church? Yes. They really think God is that way. And so they live in outright wickedness. Yet they say, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I'm responsible in my community. Yet they're not responsible to living according to the parameters of the Scripture. One of the great reformers said we are not cleansed by Christ so we can continually immerse ourselves in fresh dirt. He said it like it is. That's what the antinomians needed to hear and Jude made sure that they heard it in this little epistle. The second group, which you have memorized in your sleep by now because we've covered 1 John Sunday morning, Jude Thursday night, that's the Gnostics. We all know about them by now. They were the spiritual elitists who were above everyone else. They thought that everything in the material world was evil and wicked and God did not create the earth because the earth is wicked because it's in the material kingdom. That only that which you cannot see, which is spiritual, is good. And uh, therefore they said, Jesus, some of them said, was not God. Others said he was not man, that he uh, was this person that the Christ consciousness descended upon. And moreover... They said, every person has a spark of the divine within them. And you can attain to a Christ anointedness, a Christ likeness, a Christ consciousness if you learn, as what the Gnostics were teaching. Ever meet a person like that? All the time. Every new age guru says that. Ah, Jesus wasn't God. In fact, you have a spark of God in you. You can attain to being God. You have a Christ consciousness. Everybody is God. You're God, I'm God, sort of like John Lennon. I am He as you are me as we are all together. That's what the Gnostics believed in terms of deity. Jude (laughs) lashes out against them. Let's just cover a couple verses. Look back at verse 4. Certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness. And deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are antinomians. Look over at verse 12. He says, these are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Heavy words. Yet at the end of this book, he wants to remind us that God still loves them. That's important to remember. When you think of a sinner, when you think of somebody who's so wicked, you think of the worst kind of perverted sinner that you can think of. Of whom were some of us, by the way, you should always recognize, you should feel sorry for them. Instead of saying, oh, they anger me so much, have compassion on them. Because God loves them. Moreover, God loves the people who are victimized by that wickedness and by those false prophets, the false teachers. He loves them and He wants them rescued. And anyone who claims to follow God must also have compassion and love those that he loves. You know, one of the marks of Jesus Christ was compassion, right? When he was out by the Sea of Galilee and he saw the great multitude of people, it says that he had compassion on them. Because they were weary and they were scattered like sheep having no shepherd. That's how people act when they don't have a shepherd. People that don't know Jesus Christ... To be able to trust in Him, act like people who are weary and scattered. And when Jesus sees that crowd, He has compassion on them. And that compassion carried through all throughout the life of Jesus Christ. He was a man marked by compassion. Interesting to note in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is about to go to the cross. They take Him, the Roman soldiers rush into the Garden. They arrest Jesus And Jesus' first concern was not for himself. He didn't say, hey, lay off, buddy, not so tight. He said, who are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, then let these guys go. He was still concerned about those crazy disciples. On the cross, as Jesus was dying for the sins of the world, one of the things he said is, John, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. He wanted to make sure that his mom was taken care of, that earthly relationship for which Jesus had such compassion. As Jesus entered into Jerusalem a couple days before and looked over the city, the city that had rejected him as their king, Jesus did not say, You wicked jerks! He began to weep over them. He began to weep convulsively, it says in the original language. He would weep out loud. And he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. Jesus was a man of compassion. In these verses, verses 22 and 23, three groups of people are named. If you have a new King James, it doesn't appear that way, but I'm going to read another version to you. Look at verse 22 and 23 again in our text. On some have compassion, making a distinction or a difference, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire and hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. The new American standard... I think probably renders it the best. It denotes three separate groups of individuals. Let me read it to you. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment that is polluted by the flesh. So three groups. Number one, those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. These are the people who are young believers who've come somehow into contact with the false teachers, now they're starting to doubt their salvation, their standing with God, their walk with God. And with those young, fresh believers who are prone to be very, very unstable, Jude says, be merciful on them. Because it is those doubts that are causing that kind of an instability. They waver. Peter spoke of the vulnerability of this group of people. He spoke about the false prophets like Jude did. This is how he talked about it. He said, with eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning, and they seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed. They are an accursed brood. You know, false teachers prey especially on young, ungrounded, and disgruntled people within a fellowship. And there's a lot of those. And because of that, cults grow all the time. Look back at verse 16. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts. They mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Because of that, it is important, so important to show love within the body of Christ to each other especially, more than any other place. Jesus said, by this all men shall know that you're my disciples. He did not say, because you love everybody because you love one another. And it's principally that caring for one another that the world looks at and says, look at these Christians. They care for each other. They stick up for each other. But sometimes the world looks at the church and says, you know what? That group of people shoots its own wounded. So have mercy, or as it says in this other version, have compassion, or mercy on those who are doubting. people that fall into that category of being weak and under those doubts, as I said, are baby Christians, usually. John spoke about that. We covered it some months ago in 1 John as he writes to three different groups of Christians, remember? Young children, spiritual adolescents, and spiritual fathers. He said, little children, I write these things to you, and he uses two different terms. He speaks, first of all, of all of God's children, technion, but then he says, paideia, That is, recently born ones. I write these things to you because you have known the Father. Now you can say that of every spiritual person, every believer. You've known the Father. For a young Christian especially because that's about all they know. It's at a beautiful tender point in their Christian development. Sort of like a young baby who's just been born. young baby doesn't know very much, but that baby recognizes when mom and dad walk in the room. I remember how good it made me feel when I would walk when Nathan was a baby into his room and he'd go, Dada. And those two little words, those silly little words, made me feel so big. He recognizes me. He knows who I am. I'm his Papa. Young Christians know the Father, but they can also be very wavering and they need to be rooted and they need to be grounded. Young Christians, spiritual infants in the Lord, Live by their affections rather than their understanding. Just like a young child is easily excited and easily afraid, young Christians get easily excited and easily afraid. It's usually the young who will say, you know, I was saved yesterday, but I'm afraid I'm not saved today. I've lost my salvation. Where is it? I lost it somewhere. Bless their hearts. They're so worried about it. They get up in the morning, they don't see a Christian friend, they wonder if the rapture came. (laughs) They didn't get taken. They're up, they're down, but they're not stable. They live by their affections only. Everything that's weird and strange, it's got to be a demon. Demons are everywhere. But then he writes to the young men, Those who are spiritual adolescents, you are strong because the word of God abides in you. You're not dwelling by your affections, but by your understanding of truth. Those who are young in the faith, who are doubting, are those who are most vulnerable to spiritual attack. The enemy comes in and tries to sweep those off their feet and have them involved in false teaching. That's why Paul wrote to the Ephesians these words, that we be not tossed like children to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Because of that, we have to have mercy on these people. Lead them away from false teaching. How do you do that? Well, you know the programs you see on television, like on the news, they show a young child who has lost a father, and they say, we need a big brother for this child. You need to be a big brother and a big sister to people in God's family. You know, one of the greatest things, I think, for spiritual growth is a role model Somebody who is living the Christian life, truly, with all of his ups and downs, but is willing to be vulnerable and disciple and be a role model to young Christians. When you do that, be very patient. Because those who are doubting young believers, wavering young believers, are sometimes difficult to lead. Uh, when kids are younger, they think they know everything. When they're very young, they know it all. And it takes them growing up to realize, you know what? Uh, I'm not as smart as I used to be. Or as I thought I used to be. And so, as you lead some of the younger believers and you're a role model to them, be patient with them because they might be a little stubborn. But they're also doubting and they need mercy. They need a whole lot of compassion. It's not enough to refute false teaching, folks. I've got to underscore that. One of the most important things you can do is to provide an atmosphere, standing up against false doctrine, but at the same time providing an atmosphere of love and warmth and encouragement to nurture those baby believers. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. He said, As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God but our lives as well because you had become so dear to us for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. Now look at that next part of that. And some have compassion making a distinction, verse 23, but others save with fear pulling them out of the fire. First, you need to deal tenderly with those who are doubting. You need to deal firmly with those who are in this category, and I'll call this the singed category. You know what I mean by that? I mean that some Christians sail so close to the lake of fire their sails get singed. Oh, hey, they're they're still Christians, but you know, they just kind of want to always be on the edge a little bit. It gets pretty hot over there. And there are some times where you need to deal very firmly and sort of grab the person and snatch him out of the fire because he's on dangerous territory. And it takes a firmer kind of a stance. You help the faint-hearted, like Paul said, and you rebuke others who need the rebuke or you rescue him in that capacity. It could be that when John wrote this, he was speaking about some of the people in the fellowship who were starting to drop off. They had left the fellowship they were hanging out with the apostate groups of the Gnostics, the antinomians. And they needed a real intervention. Sort of like the angel in Sodom and Gomorrah. I love it. Lot sort of lingered and the angel just grabbed his arm and yanked him out of there. Now it doesn't mean you have to be violent with people, but it means you have to be stern with those people who are sailing in the wrong direction. Now when uh, Jude, I said John I think, but when Jude wrote this, uh, he said pulling them out of the fire. And I think what he had in mind was a couple of Old Testament scriptures of Israel by which he based this analogy. Let me read them to you. One is in Zechariah. Then the Lord showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not... Not, or is this man not a burning stick who has been snatched from the fire? In other words, even the high priest had been snatched from the Babylonian captivity, God's judgment upon the nation, but pulled them out before he consumed them and put them in their land. Second illustration comes from Amos, where God says, I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword, along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps and yet you have not returned to me says the Lord I overthrew some of you and I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah you were like a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire and yet you have not returned to me declares the Lord what God is saying is I'm rebuking you guys because you didn't pay attention to my judgments the judgments were poverty the judgments were pestilence drought, famine he goes, I pulled you out of the fire, but you have not appreciated my mercy. So Jude says, you need to make a distinction. There's some you've got to be very merciful to because they're weak and they doubt. Others, they're sailing really close to the lake of fire and they're getting singed. You've got to be a little more firm. And You've got to snatch them from the fire. As I was reading this verse this week, my mind went back to a sermon that I had gotten from somebody years ago by a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Ever heard of him? Some of you have. I can tell by the chuckles. Jonathan Edwards preached in the 1700s. Jonathan Edwards brought a whole new meaning to hellfire and brimstone preaching. Jonathan Edwards was and is still considered one of the brightest people that America has ever produced. He graduated from Yale. And in 1741, he preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was so radical. And as I was going over it this week, I thought, I owe it to you to at least give you a little excerpt of it. Because Jonathan Edwards was a guy who knew what it was like to snatch people from the fire. And he did it with his sermons. This Yale graduate, this brilliant thinker, who preached on this subject probably more than anyone else during that time, during the Great Awakening. Part of a sermon goes like this, quote, There's nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad underneath you. There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide gaping mouth, wide open, and you have nothing to stand upon or anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but air. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead and to rend downwards with great weight and pressure toward hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. It's hard in 1990 to see that that kind of preaching would be relevant. For some people, they'd get turned off by that stuff. Let me tell you the results that it had. Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield were the two predominant figures during one of the greatest revivals this country ever saw called the Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards, it is said that when he gave this sermon, he couldn't read very well, and so he bent over and he squinted. And he read this sermon completely in a monotone voice. But the Spirit of God was so heavy upon him that while he gave this, people were crying out, Stop! And they were crawling out on the aisles giving their lives to Jesus Christ. It was at a time when this country needed to hear of the judgment of God. And Jonathan Edwards was raised up to give it. Was it needed? Well, it worked. A great awakening swept through this nation. You know, there's a lot of preaching today that's just filled with fluff. It's like cotton candy. It's worthless. It's lovey-dovey from abovey. And you can do anything, just smile and be nice, because it sure is nice to be nice. So turn your scars into stars. And it does no one any good. I'm not saying that you should be negative, far from it. You should be compassionate. But the gospel has two sides of it. God is a God of love. God wants to save people. God wants to forgive you. When you follow Jesus, it's a blast. It's abundant life. But unfortunately, that's the only part that people want to hear. Turn the coin around. There's judgment. And that must be preached as well to keep it in balance. Otherwise, it is not the gospel. That's what free choice is all about. So, some have distinction, others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Notice this next phrase. that says, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. The New American Standard again says, on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. The first group, he's speaking about the weak and the doubtful. The other ones he's speaking about like the antinomians and those who are being influenced by them, who are just sort of living any way they want to and tacking Jesus Christ onto their activity. He says, pull them out of the fire. The third group is... Those who can contaminate you. And I think what he's speaking about is there are some people that as you are involved in their lives and you share the gospel with them and you're trying to rescue them, you have to be careful lest they don't influence you and drag you down. And there are some times when you want to get involved in people's lives where you want to influence them but there's a reverse effect. That person can influence you and you start to compromise and be dragged down because of it. And so it says save with fear. Actually, it's save with caution. Save with caution. Be careful that you yourself don't get trapped. I heard an interesting story of Datna Dawson Trotman, founder of the Navigators. He was an excellent swimmer. That's what he was good at. It was his best sport. And yet he died drowning. He died saving people who were in a boat wreck back in New York, and he himself couldn't be sustained for a long period of time, and He died. In saving others. Now, spiritually, you have to be careful because there are some people who, as you're too involved or very involved, if you yourself are not ready, they can drag you down. How many people have I spoken to who said, Boy, I'm confused, man. I spent two hours the other day with a Jehovah Witness, knocked on my door. He had me so twisted in knots, and he quoted this scripture and that scripture and this scripture, and I think he's right. What should I do? I said, close the door. (laughs) And invite them back and invite another older Christian who has discernment who knows the Word, who can handle the Word, to share the Gospel with them. But be careful. Be careful. There are those who doubt mercy. There are those who sail close to the lake of fire to get singed, pull them back firmly. And there are those who can contaminate. And you have to be very merciful you also have to be very, very careful. It says in the book of Proverbs, A wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages and is self-confident. Remember the scripture that says, if a brother is overtaken in a fault, what do you do? You who are spiritual, do what? Restore him, doing what? Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. See, you're out there to restore, but you have to also consider yourself because... It can be dangerous to you as well. Now, it says, hating the garment that's defiled by the flesh. I want to quickly apply this, but just for background, he's using Jewish metaphor. The Jews, if they were clean ceremonially, if they touched something unclean like a house that had mildew in it, or a dead body, or certain other ceremonially unclean situations, they were defiled overnight. Their garments were defiled, and they had to go through ceremonial cleansing. So he's saying, be careful when you're out in the world and you're winning some of these people back into fellowship or just to Jesus Christ in general. Now let's apply that. First of all, if you're dealing with cults, make sure you know the Scripture. Or bring along somebody who has a lot of discernment. Because these people are going to smile and uh, have the Bible, among other books, and uh, quote scriptures to you and say, I believe in Jesus, I love Jesus. And if you don't know anybody, you go, well, have got to be a brother then. But you've got to be careful. Because their definition of Jesus is different than this definition of Jesus. Secondly, there's a danger when some people, in trying to evangelize a certain group, subculture, or even a group of their own friends, because they want to be accepted so much by that group. They want to themselves be seen as, I'm cool. I'm okay. I'm hep. We'll lower the standard and compromise to fit in with that group instead of just being different. I'm a Christian. I'm not like you. And you can be tempted to compromise, and you yourself can become defiled. And the third application, I couldn't help but thinking, is what some people have called, it's a strange term, missionary dating. Missionary dating is the concept where, well, I know that I'm a Christian, and God has a mate for me. And I know that that guy is not a believer, but he sure is cute. And uh, besides that, um, I'm going to witness to him and I'm going to lead him to the Lord because he's so cute. Maybe I'll marry him. But I really want to see him come to Christ, really. Well, What are you doing dating him in the first place? Well, there's not many Christian guys I want to date. I've heard that a lot. I've heard guys say that about girls. And so they missionary date. Now imagine in a true mission setting, what that would be like. Imagine a young, zealous American gal with love and zeal. She goes to the jungle of Africa and she wants to share the gospel that God has given her. She goes in among a tribe. She preaches the gospel and all of a sudden, she has a special burden for the chief's handsome son. And pretty soon, he asks this girl to marry her and she's out in the mission field and She's not at home. She didn't have the support group. And so she says, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to lead that man to Christ. I think this is God's will. He's opening the door for me to share the gospel in an important way. And so she's there being a witness as she comes home to the house filled with idols. Wouldn't work, would it? That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, don't be, don't be unequally yoked. You know how the RSV translates that? Don't be mismated. The idea is the farmers in those days would take two oxen that were the same temperament, same size, um, and they put a yoke, a piece of wood that would tie them together and they would use these animals to pull the plow and get the work done. Well, if you have a different size of an animal or a different temperament, they're not going to work well together. One's going to want to go that way, the other's going to want to go that way. Well, it works that way in relationships, especially in marriage. If you are mismated, if you marry an unbeliever, Seriously. You're not going in the same direction. You're going to have a spiritual tug-of-war the rest of your life. Oh, yeah, but God might save them. Yes, he might. But he doesn't need your lousy date to do it. If you're dating somebody who's a non-believer, trust that God will raise up somebody else to share the gospel. Give that person time to make sure that that person's making a real serious commitment that he's not just doing it because, oh, I really love the Lord, but I really love you, and so I'll do anything so I can marry you. Got to be very careful. Mercy, but also be very cautious, hating the garment that is defiled by the flesh. Now look at verse 24. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. I love this verse. I get off on this verse. And to present you faultless, ah, it's getting better, (laughs) before his presence or the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory, majesty, dominion, power, both now and forever. Amen. He begins in verses 22 and 23 by talking about our duty to the victims of false teaching. He ends by giving us God's determination for victory. God's determination for victory. Now unto Him who is able to keep you from falling. You know what's beautiful about this letter? It ends just like it begins, with assurance. Look back at verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. You know, I can't help but think that some of Jude's audience were doubting. As Jude was hammering these guys, you know, they're clouds without water and damnation is reserved for them. But then he says, now you keep yourselves in the love of God, building yourself up in the Holy Spirit and the most holy faith. They're probably doubting, thinking, boy, I hope I can do that. I hope I can build myself up. How can I sustain myself? How can I keep myself in the love of God? How can I defend the faith that Jude said in verse 3? And Jude ends by saying, God who lives in you is able to keep you from stumbling. They were probably seeing their friends falling by the wayside because of these antinomians and Gnostics. And they thought, oh no, they were so strong, I thought, but now they're trapped up in false teaching. How do I know that I won't fall? Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling. That's very important. God is able to keep you. And I stand upon that daily. God is able to keep you, but you've got to want to be kept. You have to want to be kept. I'd like to show you a couple of scriptures. Would you turn back to the book of Proverbs, please? Proverbs chapter 1. I love the sound of Bibles turning. It's a great sound. Proverbs 1, verse 32 For the turning away of the simple will slay them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely, and will be secure without fear of evil. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, If you cry out for discernment, you lift up your voice for understanding, you seek her as silver, you search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the path of justice And he preserves the way of the saints. Now look over at chapter 3. Verse 21 My son, let them, that's the commandments, not depart from your eyes, keep sound wisdom and discretion. So there will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. Then you will walk safely in your way, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down, your sleep will be sweet. It says the turning away of the fools will slay them, but hey, you hang in there. And if you seek and if you cry out, and if you search for the Lord, you'll find him and God will keep you. Now turn over to First Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter. New Testament. Just keep turning right, several miles down the road. Second Peter chapter 1. By by now, if you've come to this place for very long, I quote this scripture so often, so you'll recognize it if you're not turning to it. Second Peter chapter one. Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, literal translation, putting every ounce of effort into it, not for salvation, It's not speaking about that, but spiritual growth. Add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self control. To self control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. To brotherly kindness, love. So go through the list of additives. And if you find one that's not there, say, Lord, and start praying it into your life and being obedient in areas. That would be conducive for that trait of the spirit. Notice verse eight. If these things are in your, are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness. He has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and your election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. If you do these things, you will never stumble. Now unto Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. God has given you all the resources. You need to stand and be victorious. But you've got to want to do it. You've got to walk in the Spirit. We cannot veg in the Spirit. We cannot cruise in the Spirit. We have to walk, a consecutive walk, in the ways of God. Do Christians stumble? Yep. Yep. We stumble. And when we do, the devil lets us know that we do. You know, one of the low-down, tricky things about the enemy is that he entices you to do evil, and he tries to make you feel guiltless for doing it. Come on, man. Everybody's doing it. It's okay. Really? And then as soon as you do it, he says, Look at you. You ought to feel horrible for doing that. He talked you into it in the beginning with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And then as soon as you did it, he accuses you, and he accuses you before God day and night. And what do we do when we stumble and fall? We confess our sins. And when we do, he's righteous and just to forgive us our sins. That's great about the gospel. God will pick us up. John said, these things I write unto you that you sin not. But if anyone sins, and we all go, okay, that's for me. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's great. That's great. We stumble, but God picks us up and causes that sanctifying process where we become more like Him. God will be patient with you. But you've got to be determined to be kept. When my son Nathan was learning how to walk and we took him out of the walker and he started walking, you know what? He fell down. And I didn't go, you're rotten kid. What's wrong with you? Why can't you walk? No, I picked him up. Dusted him off. Hugged him. I said, it's okay, buddy. Let's try it again. Hold my hand. I'll keep you from stumbling this time. I'll hold you. And he learned how to walk. He's able to keep you from stumbling. You want to be kept? You cry out for discernment. You apply the truth of God to your life. You add to your faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, brotherly love, kindness. These things are yours and abound. You'll be fruitful. You'll never be barren. Let's close with that future part. And to present you faultless. (laughs) You know what that word faultless means? I looked it up. thought you'd want to know. It means being without defect or blemish, able to meet the requirements and prerequisites for sacred service to God, acceptable and without fault in the inner man as well as the outer man. You know what? One day, Jesus is going to bring his bride to his father, us. He's going to present us with joy to his dad, to his father in heaven. The church. You know that Jesus has been anticipating that for a long time? That is the very thing that motivated him to go to the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He prayed to his father in the garden of Gethsemane, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me to be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And you know how we're going to be before God when he presents us? Without spot. Without spot. Did you know that's the very same word that Peter used of Jesus Christ? A lamb without spot and blemish. Very same word. I've heard so many people say, I know I'm going to stand before God and He's going to play that video camera of all those stupid things I've done all my life. Hey, listen, those have been edited out. Whoever believes in me shall not come into condemnation, but passes from death to life. And you'll stand before him blameless. I'm glad he ended this way. Because in the middle of this book, every Thursday, i stare at those verses and i go, Whew, it's going to be tough. And it's a tough set of messages. But God's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless, faultless. The hope of the future is one of the most distinguishing features between a believer and a non-Christian. What does a non-Christian have to look forward to? You know, I can't think of anything worse than growing old as a non-believer. That's the worst thing I can think of. Because there's only one way for you to look, and that's backwards. And treasure all of the past memories, and for a lot of people, they're not so hot. But as a Christian, no matter how good or bad they've been, The best is yet to come. We shall be changed. We will be like him, John said, for we will see him as he is. I'd like to close with a letter that was written to a church by an elderly gentleman who felt that he was about to go to heaven. And he wrote to the pastor of the church and he said, Dear Pastor, next Sunday you're going to talk about heaven. I'm interested in that land because I have a clear title to a bit of property. I've had it for over 55 years. I didn't buy it. It was given to me without money and without price. But the donor purchased it for me at a tremendous sacrifice. I'm not holding it for speculation since the title is not transferable. It's not a vacant lot. For more than a half a century, I have been sending materials out of which the greatest architect and builder in the world has been building me a home which will never need to be remodeled or repaired. It will suit me perfectly, individually, and it will be a custom job. Termites can never undermine its foundations, for they rest upon the rock of ages. Fire can't destroy it. Floods can't wash it away. No locks will ever be placed on the doors, for no vicious person can enter that land where my house is. It's now almost completed and ready for me to move into. But there's a valley of a very deep shadow between that place and where I live in California. I can't reach my new home without passing through that valley. But you know, I'm not afraid, because the best friend I ever had went through that same valley a long time ago. took away all its gloom. He stuck by me through thick and thin, and ever since we met 55 years ago, I hold a promise in printed form that he'll never forsake me or leave me alone. I hope to hear your sermon on heaven next Sunday from my home here in Los Angeles. But I don't know if I'll be able to. My ticket to heaven has no date marked for the trip. No return coupon. No permit for baggage. I'm all ready to go so I might not be here next Sunday night, but I'll see you there. And he signed his name. Well, by now, he's enjoying that piece of property. God's able to keep you, and I can't wait till he presents us faultless. Because right now, we're filled with faults. We look around the room, people we know. We see faults in people that we know, if you know them very well. One day, we're going to be together with him in heaven. There's not going to be a Bit of stain, not one fault. The old nature will be taken away, the flesh will be taken away. New bodies, new environment. And until that time, God's able to keep you from stumbling. Let's commit ourselves to be kept. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you that we have a promise that exceeds this earth. That in your man, in your. House, there are many mansions. You've gone to prepare a place for us. And we'll be with you soon. But until then, Father, as we walk in this world, and we still have an old nature, along with a new one. And the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are a part of our everyday experience. We submit ourselves to your truth. We submit ourselves to your word. To your power and resources to be kept. Help us, Lord, to live in obedience, to set priorities, and to run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, help us to be very gentle with those who are weak in the faith, filled with compassion and mercy. Enable us, Lord, if need be, to confront those who are close to the fire. And Lord, help us to be very careful with others that we do not get contaminated by their own lifestyle. Preserve us, Father. We count on you to do that. Your word says you are able, and tonight we take a hold and we hug that promise that should keep us.